It's simple. Shipping, logistics, capacity, access. We are connecting America's heartland to the rest of the world. The Great Lakes. It's not just about shipping. It's a story about how we're constantly innovating, how we move our products around the world. Cleveland is a port city. We've always been a port city. This is Great Lakes Forward. In our last episode, we discussed Infrastructure Week and the needs for improvements across the country. This week, we have a positive update regarding infrastructure. One, the Ohio Maritime Assistance Program, which is the first in the state of Ohio's history. And what this program does is it provides, for the first time, state operating funds for infrastructure improvements at ports here in Ohio. Port of Cleveland and Port of Toledo are two major key arteries for the logistics industry internationally and domestically here in America mainly in the trades of steel, iron ore, food exports, grain, and things of that nature. Most importantly, just making sure that our businesses have a competitive advantage to be able to get products in and get products out anywhere in the world. And so we applaud the Ohio General Assembly and Governor Mike DeWine for passing the Maritime Assistance Program because it shows the state's good faith efforts in order to make sure we in our maritime industry have what we need. But more importantly, that impacts everyone who's working within those supply chains, within the 30 or 40,000 jobs that are tied to operations at the Port of Cleveland and Port of Toledo combined to the $4 billion plus in economic activity from those two ports alone that are here in Northeast Ohio and Northwest Ohio reverberate to companies all throughout the state and the region. The Ohio Maritime Assistance Program comprises $23 million in grants available to maritime ports here in Ohio. They have active marine cargo terminals, stevedore and operations, and also ports within the Opportunity Zone. So we're glad to see this happening because most of this money will be going in places that direly need it for maritime infrastructure purposes and just generally for attracting capital. Moreover, here at the Port of Cleveland, we'll be competing for those grants to do everything from expanding our main gate facility to make sure that we are decreasing traffic and subsequently decreasing emissions from trucks waiting to load and unload at Port of Cleveland. Also, we will be applying to use that money towards some of our dock wall rebuilds that we need to do to make sure the docks are not only suitable to, to park ships and load and unload, but also make sure they're safe for the workers and the environment around there at the Port of Cleveland. Among other things that we're going to be looking to do, we also are building a new terminal for cruise ships, and so we will definitely be making sure to put that money to good use. This program has been something that me personally, as leading up our external affairs shop, which encompasses our lobbying and government relations activities as well, have been working on since I started here at the Port of Cleveland, the end of 2015. The Ohio Maritime Assistance Program was not an easy program to get established. People oftentimes come to the water, they know Lake Erie is there, they know our ports are there, but may not understand the significance of an infrastructure needed to operate or the age of that infrastructure, partly because ports oftentimes are not places in which the public or key officials spend much time at all due to security concerns and clearance issues. And again, you're dealing with very heavy machinery, hard hat areas, safety concerns, and then also with the flow of goods in and out. So it took 
at least 10 years prior to me arriving here at the Port of Cleveland. But when I arrived at the end of 2015 to take this role here, I immediately started trying to figure out how do we get more support downstate in Columbus and also talk to my colleagues in other states in order to discuss with them how they can also try to do the same and what has worked and what hasn't worked. And so for the last 15 years or so, there has definitely been conversations about this. Our CEO here at the Port of Cleveland, Will Friedman, has been engaged on this since he first came to the Port of Cleveland the CEO in 2010. And so there's been years and years of conversation, education, and I think we're at a point now to where we have a General Assembly and the governor's office all understand that what we are worth to the state's economy. I think that's invaluable. And I'm hoping that my colleagues, when they hear this podcast in other states and other ports around the country, that they're making the same push. Two, Omnitracks. The Port of Cleveland entered into an agreement with Omnitracks, our new railroad management company. Omnitrax will be managing our short line railroad that operates here at the Port of Cleveland. At the Port of Cleveland, like many ports, but specifically here for us, the short line railroad serves as a crucial connector to our first and last mile to freight networks that operate on our rail corridors here in the Midwest. And so Omnitrax will be operating our short line railroad that will help bring especially our heavy lift cargo, which we do a lot of here at the Port of Cleveland but also various other cargoes, sometimes boats and, and all those kind of things from yachts that may ship in and out of our port and various other things, especially with regards to some of the natural gas plants that are being built and under construction in western Pennsylvania and West Virginia and places like that. We oftentimes serve as the port of entry for many of those very, very heavy pieces, such as the generators and support beams and things of that nature. So we're very, very glad to have Omnitrax here, a company that, again, started off and sort of grew organically within the short line rail business, starting in the western United States and has a lot of contacts and also has a business model which is predicated upon growth and, and growing that short line rail business, which is, again, good for Port of Cleveland, good for Northeast Ohio, and the jobs associated with that. And so for those that don't understand the short line rail, is usually the first mile, last mile connector from the main line long haul rails, which you may see when you're driving along the highway. If you're here in the Midwest, you're probably seeing a lot of Norfolk Southern, BNSF, and, and if you go further west, Union Pacific, further east and south, and a lot of CSX as well. And so those short lines are often the unsung heroes of making the connections between the main tracks and to the actual delivery or the pickup of goods to get to the main tracks. So Omnitracks will be working very closely with Logistec, our terminal operator here at the Port of Cleveland. And both companies are, are very aligned to pursue growth aggressively. Again, very good for the jobs and networks here at the Port of Cleveland, but more importantly, just giving companies here within our region a another opportunity to get goods in and out of the country, another option. I mean, we're essentially are eight hours from 50% of the U.S. population right here in Ohio. And so we think we are well positioned with this partnership in addition to our new partnership with Logistec to position the Cleveland Europe Express and our general cargo services, both domestically and internationally, as a place for growth and, again, moving the Great Lakes forward. Three, Irish Town Bend. 
The United States Department of Transportation has allocated $9 million to the improvement project of the Irishtown Bend Hillside along the Cuyahoga River here in Cleveland. The Irishtown Bend Hillside, again, for those who are not familiar, is traditionally a first-generation immigrant community hillside that was settled in the 1800s by Irish families who were working on railroads and the Ohio Canal and various major infrastructure projects that we may not understand now, but were significant to the growth of Cleveland during that time, that early industrial age. Irishtown Bend, for most of its life, has been pretty much either that small immigrant community or a very industrial area. It's located just east of West 25th, between West 25th Street here in Cleveland and the Cuyahoga River. And it is a hillside that has shown some geologic instability and also because there was no real ownership of most of the land, present ownership of most of the land, I should say. There was no bulkheading and there was no way to really attack the infrastructure there from private sector setting. And so the Port of Cleveland, along with partners here at Cuyahoga County and the city of Cleveland, and various neighborhood and community partners such as West Creek Conservancy, Ohio City, Inc., NOACA, which is our regional MPO, Northern Ohio Area Coordinating Agency, all sort of stepped up in order to lead the efforts to plan, design, and to fund Irishtown Bend. The port's primary goal has been in the planning and design phase of the stabilization and the bulkheading that needs to happen at the hillside. And the stabilization is going to be key because the hillside is moving. It's moving closer and closer and parts of it are falling into the Cuyahoga River. The reason that is so detrimental is because environmentally, again, we, we don't want to have the river clogged up and, and it's stopping fish from spawning and being able to move out to the lake and things like that, especially at a time where the river is really coming back ecologically. But more importantly than that, and what will have even more immediate impact, is going to be the damage caused to shipping navigation. The Cuyahoga River Ship Navigation Channel runs probably within 10, 20 feet of the actual hillside. And so significant movement of the hillside would definitely cause the stoppage of flow of goods through the Cuyahoga River. And with those goods, we're talking everything from iron ore that keeps Arcelor Middle Cleveland Steel Mill running to the refined gasoline of marathon oil, to also looking at rock salt, cement, construction aggregates, and things like that that are delivered via maritime each and every day along the Cuyahoga River shipping channel. So again, we're talking thousands of jobs, billions of dollars of economic activity that will be impacted. So the port has led, especially with our planning team, Linda Sternheimer and our engineering team of Nick LaPointe here internally at the Port of Cleveland has been leading the efforts to consolidate land and to plan design work so we can get final construction ready. And now with this grant coming from the U.S. Department of Transportation, I've personally been involved for the last four years of going after this specific grant and also educating members of the administration, members of Congress, and USDOT staff, especially at Merad and Secretary Chow's office about the importance of Irishtown Bend and the importance it will have on us from a economic and ecological standpoint should the hillside finally give way. 
And so what we're looking to do now with this infusion of $9 million, we are going to be going to construction within the next year and a half. And we're excited about that. We're excited to be able to get this hillside stabilized, remove this threat from shipping and the environment. But more importantly, allow the hillside up the hill to now become a community asset. One of the interesting things about Irishtown Bend is that it sits adjacent to public housing. It will be the only public housing complex and area in the country that has direct access to clean, fresh water. And we think that is a, not only a, a huge amenity for that complex, but the surrounding neighborhood, which improves the quality of life and allows us to put what used to be abandoned land that had speculative value at best and now make it a community asset in which we can now use for community gatherings and also get people outside and put to good use. And it's going to be safer. So we're proud of that here at the Port of Cleveland. We're proud, again, to partner with so many community partners. And we're proud to be able to help win this grant. And we want to thank our partners at NOACA, our MPO, for being a, the grant sponsor for this round and for all their help with lobbying in D.C. as well. And just internally and in our staff at the Port of Cleveland, this thing is going to be transformative for our region. We are glad to be a part of that, and we look forward to the next fight, the next transformative issue. We'll be there to help out. The Great Lakes. In the center of North America are the Great Lakes. I want to welcome our guest, Ms. Tina Kimball from Tata Steel. Tina, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great, great. So can you tell us a little bit about Tata Steel and some of the things and reasons why, number one, you're in Great Lakes Forward, and number two, just a little bit about the company and what you guys do for those who are not initiated to this industry and specifically to Tata Steel? My pleasure. So Tata Steel is a large integrated steel producer. We've still milled all over the world, but we engage with the U.S. market mostly through our European steel business. From Europe, we sell what's called differentiated steel products to a variety of industrial sectors in the United States, such as automotive, yellow goods, and the can-making industry. We are a long-standing participant in the U.S. market, and because of that, we really care about the health of this market. In fact, we have two steel processing plants in the United States. We very much want to ensure the long-term viability of the U.S. steel industry. Great. So when you say integrated steel company, what do you mean by that term integrated? I think folks that are not necessarily familiar with the everyday workings and nuances of the steel industry, and especially the trade in the 21st century, may not understand what that word really means. So as an integrated steel producer, that means that we produce steel from raw materials. So there's two types, of, essentially two types of steel mills. There's integrated and then there's electric arc furnace. So we buy iron ore, coal, coke, all of the necessary raw materials, and then we put them in what's called a blast oxygen furnace. So we essentially melt them all together, process them, and the ultimate output of what we produce is steel. That is the oldest way of making steel. In the more modern way, the more newly developed way of making steel is to take that steel produced raw materials and then use it as scrap. So the scrap, the leftover steel, 
then gets put into an electric arc furnace or a mini mill, you may have heard that term before, and they can recycle the steel to make new steel from the old. So you either have two types of production, integrated or mini mill, and we're integrated. Great. I appreciate that explanation. I think uh, for our listeners here on Great Lakes Forward, that will go a long way in just understanding some of the issues that you may hear about, whether it's trade, whether it's jobs, whether it's products or environment or whatever it is with regards to the steel industry. So thanks a lot for that, Tina. Could you tell us a little about what your specific role is at Tata Steel? So at Tata Steel, it's my job to interface with the U.S. government on any matters that impact the company. Now, usually a foreign steel company engages with the United States government on matters relating to international trade. But other issues pop up from time to time, such as regulatory compliance or even environmental issues. My background is in international trade, so the international trade issues are my sweet spot. I have been an international trade lawyer for about 20 years. I started my career at the Justice Department doing immigration litigation, so another really interesting and really difficult area of the law. But then I jumped over to international trade pretty early in my career. I started in international trade just as the World Trade Organization was formed, and I litigated one of the very first cases there for the U.S. government when I worked at the International Trade Commission. In my lengthy career, I have served in the U.S. government for 15 years, most recently as the clerk of the court for the Court of International Trade and in private practice. So I've pretty much done international trade from a lot of different angles. So it seems like uh, you are the expert uh, there at Tata Steel here in the, on the U.S. government side. And so we look forward to just being able to, to sh- you to be able to share some of your expertise with our listeners here at Great Lakes Forward as well with that lengthy background of everything from immigration to trade and environmental issues. I think you cover the bases about everything that is on the major news networks right now. So feel free to jump in and, and give any opinions on anything else as well. So tariffs have dominated the front page of newspapers and magazines and breaking news segments everywhere from your, your Facebook timeline and Twitter timeline to your network news and your local news as well, radio and TV. What led us to this point? How did we get here? Oh boy, that's basically asking me to condense 20 years of trade policy into a single podcast. Um, but, but let's give it a try. Let's talk about this sort of at the very high summary level. So I think that the global trading system has had a lot of promise for a lot of people and has, has generally speaking elevated the standard of living for a lot of people in the United States and around the world. But it also has failed a lot of people. And trade experts like me were so busy basking in the glory of all the good that trade was doing that we really lost sight of the folks who were hurt by trade. So the current administration never lost sight of it. It won the election based on a promise to help those people and it is trying to fulfill that promise. We can discuss what the government is doing, and I'm sure we will, and whether it's right, so I won't touch on it now. But what we are seeing now is we have to give credit to the administration for identifying this important issue and changing the way that we talk about trade. 
So what is exactly happening now then that we at the Port of Cleveland, who are a lot more to know than your average listener maybe, but if you're talking to somebody who's just tuned in to Great Lakes Forward because they are interested in ships and shipping in general or just love the water, what is happening now and why should they care? Right. So what's going on now is is that this administration has a very particular belief, and that belief is that the international training system, at least since the World Trade Organization came into effect in the early 1990s, it has operated to the disadvantage of the United States. What the WTO system did was it brought a rules-based trading system into place so that all countries would have equal access to global markets. But the current administration has identified a problem with that. It believes that the system has been really hard on this country. And the U.S., as the largest economy in the world, is willing to follow a rules-based system if it is administered fairly. But particularly when it comes to China, this administration believes that the system has worked to unfairly advantage China over the United States. So you see the U.S. challenging the global order in trade by trying to drastically change the World Trade Organization system and therefore confront China's explosive growth which it believes is driven by non-competitive practices. So while most of the international trade community applaud these efforts, and let's face it, at first, really reluctantly, but now we know that there are few people who, who are left who would say that the WTO system does not need reform and that China's bad policies and practices don't need to be addressed. The lingering question for most people, though, is about the methods. Well, when you when you say like some of the bad practices, whether those practices are specific to China or not, or this specific or or to those specific Asian issues per se, what are some practices or issues that sort of come up and cause trade conflicts? So the one that I was going to focus on, given who I am at Tata Steel, right, is the is Chinese overcapacity in steel. Generally mm. recognized across the the community that this is a China problem that they have an overcapacity in steel. And that glut that they put out on the market is affecting global steel trade. So the response to that overcapacity, though, for this administration, is that it has imposed tariffs on many other countries, including those, for example, in Europe. Now, European steel is not a problem for the United States. Europe has long joined with the United States to confront Chinese steel overcapacity. So while we recognize that the, the Chinese issues are causing problems, it's unclear how imposing tariffs on European steel is going to reduce Chinese overcapacity. More broadly speaking, what we see is the U.S. government using tariffs in a way that leaves a lot of people confused about how this remedy is going to address the long-term challenges with trade that this administration has correctly brought to light. So there's a lot of questions about not why the administration is doing what it's doing, but in Mm -hmm. fact, whether what it's doing is effective. So essentially, there is a distinction about, you know, not why, but how. And so I think when you see a lot of things in the news, the why is, is not something that is as hotly debated as just the how and, and how this has an effect and how this spills over into other aspects of the economy. So 
thinking of, of how, how did this change and shift your work there at Tata Steel? I'm, I'm sure that with you being the primary representative to the U.S. government, there has been a significant change in sort of your focus as opposed to maybe two or three years ago. Is that true? And if it is true, what does that look like now? Definitely true. I didn't know I was a national security expert two or three years ago, but now that apparently, you know, steel tariffs are needed for national security reasons, I guess I'm a national security expert, not just a trade expert. <laughs> that is a change. Yeah, right? But the reality or, or, or the way the work has changed is that steel has been, as a trade topic, continuously a very hot topic. The reality is that the WTO did bring a lot of certainty to the global trading regime. But nonetheless, steel, it just never really, it never really stabilized. In the U.S. in particular, the steel industry has continuously used the anti-dumping laws. And so, so for a steel company, engagement with the U.S. government in order to participate in the U.S. market is something that we are very accustomed to. Tata Steel does not dump steel into the United States in order to gain market share. And so we have not had to contend with the really high level of tariffs that we have today ever before. For us, while we understand, for the most part, how the dumping laws are administered in this country, which is different than how it is administered in other countries. But the system for 232 tariffs, like the mechanics of, of how 232 tariffs actually work, even for a company like ours that is accustomed to dealing with the government on trade issues, this system is a black box. So my work has really evolved in terms of trying to help my company manage the regulatory compliance side of actually paying these, these high duties and then trying to apply for exclusions to legitimately avoid those duties. And in the current environment, neither of those things is particularly easy. Got you. So it seems like that black box and the difficulties with just the transparency of that black box regarding the 232 tariffs has caused some difficulty with actually how to even comply with the tariffs in their current form right now and how to also use the levers within our current tariff laws to legitimately apply for exemptions to those tariffs. Did I can sort of get that summed up right? So, for example, then what is a steel product that is subject to the tariffs? You hear the customs is working like crazy and have, have needed additional resources just to handle the amount of companies coming in and asking for classification decisions. Asking, when my product comes into the United States, is it supposed to be paying the steel tariffs or not? Is it a steel product? Mm -hmm. So... Some pretty basic questions that now are, are coming to light that they've just totally upended what we've all expected from the system. Mm. So what does this new trade environment mean for global trade, shippers, ports, especially when we're talking about the Great Lakes and, and the Port of Cleveland, which I have a special affinity for, the Port of, the port of Cleveland, but also the American economy in general? Yeah. Um, so anyone involved in moving goods in the United States is, is hurting some right now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. government strategy is to bring American manufacturing back. So this administration is completely fine with closing off America to foreign goods. And, and you hear it said all the time from this government that America is making a lot of money, for example, off of the Chinese having to pay tariffs to bring their goods into the United States. So this administration sees a double win with, with their policies right now. They see American manufacturing returning and until then, the revenue to the treasury increasing. So for those of us who import products, the ships that move our products, and the ports that take our products in, it is really hard to see that win. Nonetheless, the American economy really has been surprisingly resilient in the face of all this trade uncertainty. A lot of economists predicted a real doomsday scenario when the U.S. first started imposing these tariffs, and that doomsday scenario has not panned out. Now, I'm not an economist. I do not have a crystal ball. I see the global economy deteriorating and the U.S. economy appears to be slowing down. So only time will tell whether the economy is strong enough to withstand any more trade shocks from this administration. So what do you anticipate the, what will happen in the next two or three months? What does that mean for you? Anyone who tells you that they know what's going to happen in the next two or three months is simply lying. <laughs> it's just far too uncertain right now. I can tell you that we are watching a lot of things. The, of course, you know, the tensions between China and the U.S. is the forefront issue. But then you have things like the prospects for renegotiating the NAFTA and the Japan-U.S. free trade agreement. Those appear to be pretty front and center. Of course, at Tata's Steel, we are following the dynamics between the U.S. and Europe very closely. And unfortunately, those tensions do not seem to be easing, especially now when you have the expected WTO authorized tariffs that both sides soon will be leveling against each other as a result of the Airbus Boeing litigation. I definitely, for now, see the situation getting worse. Digital tax with regard to the moves that France has done and then the 301 investigation that the U.S. administration has started, also causing a lot of noise there. And for, again, for Europe U.S., the 232 autos investigation is going to be very important. Outside of Europe, we're looking at India. India lost its GSP benefits, and that was a major shock to some, to some people. And there's a potential 301 case there. Could you explain what that GSP means? generalized system of preferences. So for for some countries, if they're lesser developed, least developed, then the United States gives them essentially a tax break, right? It gives them a break on having to pay tariffs. Mm-hmm. What the U.S. government has said to India is you have violated the terms under which we are willing to give you that break, that your market is is too closed to U.S. businesses. And you're not taking sufficient action to open that market. So we are going to remove your GSP benefit. So there's, there's, there's lots of conversation around that right now, because, of course, India is a very important market and very important geopolitically to the United States. Yes. So it was yeah. one that surprised a lot of people when it happened and one that, that we're continuing to watch very closely. So I guess the last point, the last thing that we're watching that's important, more from 
this trade rules-based system that if you're really into trade issues like me is one that is extremely important and that is the reform of the WTO system. Again, the Trump administration has pointed out some issues that initially people were really reluctant to tackle, but it is now generally accepted that there are issues with the WTO system and those issues need to be fixed. So they're, they're working through those issues and hopefully that will be resolved soon. So understanding that, and I appreciate that background and understanding the complexities of of the 232 cases, the 301 cases, and just some of the spillover that that's having in economies all over the world since we pretty much trade with everyone and everyone trades with us. How has that affected the American steel industry? Is this increasing American steel manufacturing or is that still on horizon where that is going to become one of the results of these of these actions right now and how has tata steel responded to the current situation tata steel's response is to really double down on on the fundamentals we have participated in the u.s market for six years we are a responsible player in the u.s market as i said we have steel processing facilities in the united states in northeast ohio so close to you there cleveland and we are we are committed to those those manufacturing facilities. And so the health of the U.S. steel industry is very important to us. And so we just plan on continuing to participate responsibly in the United States market. And what that means for us and, and how I think what we are doing to plan for the future and what I would encourage other people to do as well is really to focus on your fundamentals. We've, we've developed strong networks and programs that allow us to be confident that we can follow any rules change that that comes our way. We also know the markets that we're in really well and what the rules are there because we know we need to be nimble to respond to any changes. I think that people buried their heads in the sand when a lot of the trade uncertainty first happened, thinking that it was going to be a short-term problem. But we did not. And I don't think that most people think that way anymore anyway. So we're all a little bit scrambling to figure out how to deal with the trade situation. But that's why it's really when you go back to basics and you ensure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, the way you're supposed to be doing it, in a way that demonstrates your commitment to the market, then you are going to be able to follow all of the rules that this international trading system has in place, both to protect us as traders and to protect the governments that are enforcing these rules. Basically, what we, what we know is that if we're going to participate in the system, then we better know how to follow the rules. And we're really focusing on, on that area. You had mentioned some of the steelworks that Tata Steel has in Northeast Ohio. Could you talk a little bit about the, the steel company's role in Northeast Ohio and, if you want, in the greater Great Lakes region, whether as shipping or whether as production or trade in general? So we have these, these processing plants. There's one processing plant in Warren, Ohio. It's a specialized facility that does plating of steel. And, for example, it does plating for steel that is used in batteries. 
plant, something that we all understand and know, battery. So it has about 150 employees, and they come from all over Northeast Ohio. Now, one of the things that, that I'm particularly proud of is the role that Tata Steel has played um, in getting steel into Northeast Ohio. And it was really interesting for me because, as it turns out, one of our newly hired employees courted me one day and said how proud he was to be working for Tata Steel for this very issue. Because apparently when we first started bringing steel in to the Great Lakes via ship, we were one of the first companies to do it. So the idea that you could bring in steel from Europe straight into essentially the heartland of America was a new concept. And the people in the community were really excited about it. So I think that a lot of people at Tata Steel feel really excited about how they are contributing to the economy and, and the state of Ohio through their facilities in Northeast Ohio. Now, the reason, part of the reason why they're, they're so excited about this, right, is because taking ships and, and loading steel in Europe and then dropping steel off in Ohio is extremely efficient. But it's not just the economic benefits that are, that are attractive to the company and that make our employees so proud. Shipping is by far the most environmentally friendly, friendly way to move goods. By using a single ship to go from Europe all the way to Ohio, we are doing what is right for the company's bottom line, but we are also serving the greater good through the uh, environmental benefits. It has really turned out to be a win-win situation, and people are proud. No, that's great. We oftentimes talk about how at the Port of Cleveland, we are green port on a blue lake. Again, with the over 13 million tons of cargo we're bringing in every year, we're trying to increase efficiencies with our environmental impact and imprint everything from dealing with runoff to dealing with investing in new cranes with dramatically lower emissions, investing in infrastructure so we can stage areas better and also be able to cut down the amount of times you have to handle equipment. Again, from just having adequate new and refreshed infrastructure, not only lowers cost of handling that equipment, it also lowers environmental impact of handling that same equipment when you think about engines running and things like that. Moreover, just the amount of stuff you can bring in via maritime, even with some of the limitations with getting through the locks and things of those nature in the St. Lawrence River and the Welland Canal, the amount of things you can bring in just far outweighs, you know, the amount of trains or trucks or or airplanes and, and, and the weight limitations there that you can actually use. So we're glad to, to help facilitate that trade here as well as other ports here in the Great Lakes in order to keep our lakes blue and get our ports greener. So one other thing I want to look at, how can we as as people that are going to be involved in, in these trade actions from one way or another, whether we're advocating on either side of that action as a port or Tata Steel or whatever you, whatever you guys are going to be advocating on either side of that issue, what can we expect for the future? What should we be planning? What should we be doing? And what, what do you think other steel companies such as Tata Steel will be doing in the future, understanding the world in which we're living in now in this current environment and current administration? I think there's really two things that I would, would point to. And the first thing is be nimble. 
right? We have a lot of uncertainty. So everybody just needs to be prepared to move quickly and be able to react to whatever new initiative comes our way. If you are committed and focused on serving the, we have longstanding customer relationships. We want to, to help them achieve their best. And we just need to be ready. And, and the Port of Cleveland, for example, is, is a good partner in that, where we need to be able to react um, and to do so quickly to whatever's coming our way. So be nimble. And then the second thing is, again, I just turned back to follow the rules, know the rules, have systems and processes in place to be able to react to rules changes. If you have your core system functioning, then when a change happens, you can react in a way that is legitimate, that is helpful to the commercial objective. If, if you're not focused, if, if companies are not focused on getting their house in order and really understanding the rules that they're operating under, then when those rules change, they're never going to be able to keep up. So as we as a steel company, both in the U.S. and in Europe, are moving with the rules as they move, we have systems in place to know when the rules changes and how to react. And we need our partners, like the Port of Cleveland, to react with us. I, I can tell you this. We at the Port of Cleveland, we're all, we stay ready. We have to, we have to stay ready because uh, honestly, when, when, when our CEO, Will Friedman, and any of us on the executive team at the Port are getting together and making decisions about our public policy issues or what, what decisions we're going to, take with regards to operations of the port and trade is not separate from that at all we have about twenty thousand jobs tied to our operations here we have to get this right not to mention just the overarching ripple effect of those twenty thousand jobs and the three billion plus dollars economic activity here at our port how that affects other great lakes ports and how that affects the supply chain of products that are coming in and out of those ports as well we see this as a very symbiotic relationships between our shippers, our shipping, and, and companies like Tata who are operating on both sides of the Atlantic and ports like ours. When you look at Duluth and, and the things they're doing there, Burns Harbor, Chicago, the ports, again, when you think about on the Canadian side as well, this trade issues have a large impact on a very large economic region of the world, which is the Great Lakes, which I think we would be in the top 10 of economies in the world if we stood alone just in our ourselves. So again, we have to get this right. And, and Tina, I, I appreciate you stressing, understanding the rules, understanding what's going on. I think for those of of our listeners that may or may not be involved in, in these trade issues every day, still make sure you're aware if you're manufacturing anything and, and you may have to change suppliers, you need to be aware of what that may be as well. If you are a boat watcher and waiting for your favorite ship to come in and wondering where's it at, it may be stuck waiting on getting cleared from customs and paying the duties. We don't know whether you're for them or against them. I think we need to all have an understanding, as you so thoroughly laid out, Tina, that these things have real impacts. That we're going to eventually get to real answers 
And in the meantime, we need to all make sure that we understand understand what's in that black box of rules, what's in the black box of needs, and how do we plan accordingly. Tina, I want to just thank you for coming on today. I want to thank you for taking the time out and, and for giving a perspective from Tata Steel. And more importantly, with your years of experience from working on various angles of this, I think just the PhD that you gave today, short dissertation that you gave today in these issues, I think is going to be very valuable for our listeners, especially in a region like Cleveland and the Great Lakes in general. We make a lot of stuff, and a lot of that stuff is made with steel. And so having your perspective and your expertise at Tata Steel there, we appreciate it and we appreciate you sharing that today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. No problem. No problem. Is there anything else you would like to say to our Great Flakes Forward listeners before we sign off today? Just keep on keep on doing what you're doing. This economy is great. Let's keep it up. Will do. Will do. And we will be sure to keep the flag raised for trade and our Great Lakes economy. Miss Tina Kimball, thanks a lot, and we look forward to working with you in D.C. and here at the Port of Cleveland. Thank you very much. Me too. This is CEO's Corner. We're excited to have here for another round of CEO Corner. Port of Cleveland President CEO Will Friedman. Will, thanks for joining us again for CEO's Corner. It's great to be back, Jade. Happy to do it. Today, we want to focus on the innovation of shipping, especially with regards to what we're doing here in the Great Lakes, what we're doing here in Cleveland, and the sustainability of those efforts as well. We all know that within this industry, you need a social license from your community to operate as much as you also need to be nimble for new cargoes, for new shippers, the needs of shippers and things like that. So let's talk a little bit about sustainability and then specifically about Green Marine, which currently you're the chair uh, for this year. And so we would love to have your perspective on that. Yeah, Green Marine is a good place to start in terms of talking about sustainability and green shipping. So Green Marine is an industry-founded, voluntary, environmental compliance organization. It's really had tremendous success over the years. It's, I think it's now in its 12th year. And I was chair of the board of Green Marine this past year. I just rolled off of that here at the Green Tech Conference, which is Green Marine's annual conference in Cleveland in June. So Green Tech was created here in the Great Lakes. The idea started here. And the idea was to stay ahead of regulations and the regulators and actually create a standard, a certification standard that participants from the maritime industry could could earn each year that would push them out ahead of where the regulations are so that these companies could put a seal of approval on their companies that said, they're doing more than required by the regulators. That was really the idea. And it was a recognition that that's what shareholders and stakeholders and the public, you mentioned public license to operate, all were going to expect and demand going forward, especially here in the Great Lakes where ship operators, ports, shipyards are doing business in an environment that is so coveted by everyone. It's 20% of the world's fresh water. It's our drinking water. So that was the 
initial concept for Green Marine, and then it's just been a huge success as it's been rolled out over the years. And so it's now, just to give you an example, every port in Canada is a, is a participant in Green Marine, and we now have more U.S. ports, port authorities, that are participants than on the Canadian side. So it's growing very rapidly here. On the U.S. side of the border, we have a number of ship owners who are now participants. There are categories for ports, shipyards, ship owners, and marine terminal operators, four separate categories with separate criteria to earn certification. As I mentioned, every year we grow, both geographically and just in terms of the raw numbers, and it's a highly regarded program. The U.S. EPA, the Canadian environmental regulators, even internationally, Green Marine is really the gold standard for maritime environmental certification. It's really been an honor to be associated with it. And if you were to attend a Green Tech conference, you would see that we're really on the on the cutting edge. There's so much happening in the maritime realm in terms of the switch over to lower sulfur fuels, which is being mandated internationally by the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, by 2020, to ballast water treatment technologies that are also being mandated by IMO and being installed on ships worldwide, and many other ways, including now there are cargo ships that are going to have automated sails on them so they can catch the wind and augment the engines that drive the ships. Just a really exciting what's happening to make shipping worldwide even greener than it already is. That's that's interesting. And that insight from what shippers and, and ship owners are using and looking to sustainability with shipping, I think it's something that all of us, all of us as residents, all of us as humans are probably going to be more and more concerned about as time goes by only because we only have one earth. We need to protect it, especially the drinking water here. So thanks to that background. And, and so you, you mentioned a little bit about the Green Tech Conference. The Green Tech Conference was hosted here in Cleveland June 5th through 7th and pretty big conference and also very key with the 50th anniversary of the last Cuyahoga River fire in June 22nd of 1969. And that was celebrated in the month of June as well here in Cleveland. For those that may not be familiar with the Cuyahoga River or its significance within the national environmental movement, it was sort of the last river had a story written about it in Time magazine, which happened to also be the same issue of time that had the Chappaquiddick affair with Ted Kennedy as well. So it was a very widely read issue of Time magazine. And so because of that, although the picture that was in Time Magazine was of a previous fire because the river caught fire at least 14 times that people counted up until 1969. That picture of a river on fire and also a hand, a scientist had put their hand in the river around that time and pulled it out and the hand was black with oil and other chemicals and things like that out of the water. And so that ended up being one of the rallying cries that was led by the Stokes brothers, Mayor Carl Stokes at that time, and Congressman Louis Stokes were very instrumental in getting and kicking off and supporting the first Earth Days and ushering through Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and establishing the U.S. EPA. And so here in Cleveland with that, the remembrance of the Cuyahoga River pollution and its comeback since then of now being a river that is widely used by both industry and it empties into Lake Erie. So again, it's a vital part of drinking water and things like that for millions of people. Can you just talk about a little bit of the conference and also the significance of the comeback of the Cuyahoga River? 
Green Tech was timed here to be close to, as you mentioned, the actual day, June 22, 1969, of the infamous Cuyahoga River fire. The last one, there'd been others previously. And so that allowed us, me and others here from Cleveland to really use that historical incident to showcase the amazing story of the comeback of the Cuyahoga River. And that's been paralleled in many watersheds and in many industrial cities around the Great Lakes. Just amazing to see people who are out in the river today on stand-up paddle boards and kayaks, enjoying the river, fishing, eating the fish out of the river. These were things that if you look at the pictures from 50, 60 years ago, it's hard to believe because you really didn't want to go anywhere near the river. And it literally just sort of had a film of ooze and chemicals on top of it. That's why it caught fire. But today, other than sometimes getting a little muddy because we still have sediment that Mother Nature washes down the river, but that's for the most part clean and not a health concern, it's a very usable river. Tying that into Green Tech, telling our story here in Cleveland, talking about how we're still sharing our, our river between multiple uses, recreational, all the way up to heavy industry that still operates on that river and how we're managing all those things at one time. And on some days, it's a very busy place with 650-foot freighters that navigate five and a half miles up a winding Cuyahoga River. And Cuyahoga, of course, in the native language means crooked river or twisting river. And so these ships are moving up river or down river. At the same time, we have boaters and paddle boarders, etc. It's quite a show. That's the the success story that we were able to tell. And that's part of the whole experience at Green Tech where you really get to see innovations that are occurring in lots of places like Vancouver, British Columbia, where they're protecting whales or in the St. Lawrence, also efforts underway to protect whales. Just a myriad of innovations occurring in our industry that are all uh, being discussed at Green Tech. So with that, since we're talking about innovation, Will, I know one thing that the Port of Cleveland and has been new for the Great Lakes since 2014, the Cleveland Europe Express has been one of the largest innovations that got international attention as well. As you very well know, containerized cargo became very popular in the 50s and 60s, and containers are, are also ubiquitous with everything we see on the roads now. And people think of ports, they think of container yard, and seeing containers being moved off ships and the ship coming in with a bunch of containers. In the Great Lakes, we have basically been bypassed by container shipping with most years not one container being moved in and out of Great Lakes. So until the Port of Cleveland decided to sort of be cowboys and and invest in creating a sustained schedule container vessel service that with direct shipping to Europe. Could you talk about that, the, the Cleveland to Europe Express? Could you talk about what led you down that path as leader of this organization and also as a Great Lakes maritime leader, what that meant to the Great Lakes maritime economy? Yeah, so when I got here in 2010, we immediately started doing strategic planning, which of course everyone does a strategic plan. And we really wanted to figure out how to grow our port, how to make it more relevant, how to use it to benefit companies locally so that they could grow. It's not about us growing. Our growing is just going to be a byproduct of companies growing because it's really that you know, private sector employment that we want to we want to drive. So we knew we had to diversify the cargo base here because the cargoes that we'd been handling traditionally for years and years and years were not growing a lot, sort of stable, move up and down, but really not showing the growth that would move the needle. 
So we decided to look very, very closely at container shipping, liner shipping, very common at, at ports all around the world. It's how global trade has moved. And as you mentioned, it just doesn't exist here in the Great Lakes. We didn't think that, that that had to be the case. So we did a very detailed market analysis, and you know you have to start looking at the cost side. It's all about, can you be cost competitive? And so we concluded that we could be, at least on paper, and then thanks to Port of Cleveland Board of Directors that was courageous enough to say yes to this idea, we launched the Cleveland Europe Express in 2014, and Port Authority chartered a ship and really was the owner of the business and took the risk in the first year and we were off and running, and it's called the Cleveland Europe Express. We're in our sixth year this year, and we're moving containers back and forth between Antwerp, which is the second largest port in Europe behind Rotterdam, which isn't far away, and Antwerp is also a leading, it's the leading break bulk port in Europe. That means cargo that doesn't go in a container, and the Cleveland Europe Express was designed for both containers and break bulk cargo, so Antwerp is a perfect port for us on the European side and gets us you know, close to, to Germany and really the, the population centers in Europe that trade the most with this part of the U.S. And it's been a, a success story for us, and we have proven to the world, especially some doubters here in the Great Lakes who thought you couldn't do it, who told me, uh, I heard from a number of people, you can't do it. You can't move containers in and out of the Great Lakes. It's not going to be competitive. And usually people say that because we close in the winter. The system shuts down for a time, usually from about the end of the year, right around January 1st to about mid-March or maybe you know around March 20th or so. We don't like the closure, but we have figured out how to work around it, and we have proven that even with the closure, you can reroute the cargo in the off-season, and we can still be successful, and the customer is happy with the end result. So this has really been a game-changer for shipping on the Great Lakes, and it has caused a chain reaction, and we now have groups like the Great Lakes Governors and Premiers, which is an association of all the Great Lakes governors and the two premiers on the Canadian side, their counterparts, who have now taken up maritime and maritime shipping and are really sort of have taken the baton from us and are running ahead with, with an agenda to open up the seaway, make it more competitive, and allow for services like ours to thrive and to and to grow. So I, that wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for what we did here with the Cleveland Europe Express. And we were the first mover, and I think we're going to benefit because of that. And I think we're way ahead of everybody else. Nobody else has this yet. And I think this is just the beginning, and we're going to see eventually some of those carriers, ocean carriers over the years who decided they couldn't come into the Great Lakes or didn't want to because it was easier for them to go elsewhere with those ships and that cargo, they're going to want to come back here because it's an all-water route into the heartland of America. So if you keep the cargo on the ship, you're burning less fuel per ton mile, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you're saving money, and believe it or not, you're saving time. It's actually door-to-door a shorter transit time from, say, a Munich, Germany to Akron, Ohio than using the coastal port, the East Coast port traditional routing. The reason for that is that most of the cost and the time in the journey is not on the ocean. The ocean is a relatively simple matter unless there's bad weather, but that's straightforward to once you have a container on a ship and you're you're out on the open waters. It's when you hit land. It's when you get to a congested port on the East Coast. It's when you have to move through a congested rail network or on the highways. And that's where the time is, and that's where the cost is. So we've taken that out of the equation by bypassing all that and coming all the way into Cleveland, Ohio by water, 
and you have a much shorter, much less congested inland portion of the overall journey. And the customer, the end customer, loves that result. So we've talked about the innovation that the port has done as far as customers and shipping with more products like the Cleveland Europe Express and, and availability. We talked about the sort of innovation of Green Marine and then also the rebirth of the Cuyahoga River. What are some other efforts the port is undertaking in order to provide a more sustainable, greener port operation here at the Port of Cleveland and throughout the Great Lakes? Okay, well, let me talk about a couple of things related to the Cuyahoga River and shipping that are really examples of our commitment to sustainability. First one is dredging. The Cuyahoga River produces a lot of sediment, mostly just sort of sand and silts that are pushed downriver by the current, and those all end up here in the last five miles or so of the river, which we refer to it as the ship channel. It's been deepened. The Army Corps of Engineers deepened the first five, six miles of the river. It's a federal navigation channel. So every year that portion of the river has to be dredged. We have to remove the sediments that build up naturally and cause the river to become more shallow because if not, there's enough depth in the water for the big ships to make it all the way up to the steel mill. So it's critically important. There are literally thousands of jobs that depend on that happening, and it has to happen every year. The easy part is dredging, just going out and scooping it up. The hard part is what do you do with it after you scoop it up, because it's an enormous amount of material. It's about 250,000 cubic yards of material, which to visualize that, think of an NBA basketball arena like a bowl. If you take the roof off and the rest of it is just an open bowl, it would fill an NBA basketball arena to the brim. That's how much material we're talking about every year. So it's a daunting task to deal with that material. What we've done that's innovative and sustainable and we think we're a national model is we have now started using, and it's called beneficial use, using 50%, some years closer to 60% of the material that is dredged as opposed to just throwing it away like a waste product and putting it in a landfill. So that is a highly sustainable way to treat the material. It's really taking what Mother Nature is eroding away from the banks of the river and then putting it back in the ground somewhere as a construction fill material for the most part or an amendment to what they call an engineered soil, like a topsoil that can be spread on a field or used in your garden. And that has done a couple things for us. It, it has enormously increased the capacity of the landfill, which we call a confined disposal facility, where this material is placed. So if you're taking out 50 to 60% of it every year, well, you're conserving that much space for the future. So that's really important. It saves a lot of money for us. And it's provided us a means of using this in a way that benefits the community. So we're really proud of that program and we haven't seen anything anywhere in the U.S., maybe worldwide, where beneficial use has been as successful as here in Cleveland. And think about it. This is coming out of the Cuyahoga River, the river that burned 50 years ago. And now we're able to use this material beneficially as we are. So so it's a great story, and we're proud of it. And just 10 years ago when I got here, we didn't know what we were going to do with this material. Everybody, Army Corps of Engineers, our partner that's required to dredge every year, state agencies, local governments, We're all scratching our heads, really, really concerned about where are we going to put this material. So with this idea of dredging sediment, is that specific to Port of Cleveland or is this something that is more common in the maritime industry? No, dredging is very common. So if you think about it, many, many ports, harbors 
are built where there's a river that drains into a body of water, into a, an estuary, a bay, both here in the Great Lakes and, of course, on saltwater. So wherever you have a river, depending on the geology, the topography, you're, you're going to get a certain amount of sediment that's going to wash down river and end up at the bottom, wherever you have that river meeting the ocean, or in our case here, the Great Lakes. Some places you get light or moderate sedimentation, and in some places you get a lot more. Again, just sort of depends on the geology. And we get quite a bit here, but there are places like take the Rhine, for example, in Europe. They're constantly dredging the Rhine. It never stops. They dredge the Rhine probably 24-7, 365. And they're able to just take all that sediment for the most part and just dump it out into the open waters of the North Atlantic. It's environmentally acceptable. Basically, they're just taking sand and putting it out there on the bottom of the ocean and nobody cares. So that's how they solve their problem there. We can't do that here because our sediments are not suitable to be placed out in the open waters of Lake Erie. It's our drinking water, it's fresh water, and there are still traces of chemicals, very minute traces, but there's still traces of, of chemicals that bind to our sediment here that, that are not safe to place out in Lake Erie because they would get into the food chain and eventually all the way up to fish and we catch the fish and, and we eat them. So it is far more safe. In fact, it's highly regulated and deemed safe by Ohio EPA to use that sediment and place it back in the ground where it came from. But we don't want it going into the lake. But dredging worldwide is very, very common. And in most cases, you're not on fresh water and you don't have the history of contamination that we have here. And so it's much easier for them to deal with whatever their sediment load is. But in the Great Lakes, we've got to be more careful. And that's why what we've done here is so important because we've been able to figure out how to deal with this material safely and economically. So what other innovative things that do you see on the horizon for the maritime industry with regards to Great Lakes in general? Is it going to be more autonomous ships? Is it going to be shore power? Is it going to be things with more navigation aids or is it going to be other ship technologies that are just not in the public vernacular right now? Yeah, I think looking forward, if I could look at the crystal ball, I would say autonomous ships or ships that are semi-autonomous definitely is in the, in the offing. If you think about it, even though the marine environment is clearly full of potential risks, it's probably easier to automate a ship than it is an airplane. And we've already pretty much done that with airplanes. I mean, airplanes are flying themselves for the most part. There's pilots sitting there, but we all know planes can be put on autopilot. Same technology can be deployed into the maritime world, and that's coming. It's being tested here in the Great Lakes and in other places, and I don't think there's any question that we're going to see that in the future. I think we're going to see ships that are going to burn uh, different fuels, lower sulfur fuels. The shipping industry is committed to reducing sulfur emissions from the fuel they burn, and there's several ways to do that. They can burn lower sulfur fuel, which is now becoming available, or they can put scrubbers, what are called scrubbers, onto their stacks. And so that's absolutely coming in the near future, and it's going to mitigate probably the one aspect of, of shipping in terms of its environmental performance that was most in need of improvement. I mean, in terms of burning greenhouse gas emissions or producing greenhouse gas emissions, as you move cargo, shipping is way ahead when compared to truck and rail. You burn far less fuel per ton and you emit less greenhouse gas already today. But it was the other side of the equation, the sulfurs that needed to be reduced and that's coming. So so that's going to make the shipping industry even greener and, and a better alternative moving forward. In addition, we're going to see all sorts of ways that ships just become more efficient as I, I mentioned earlier, 
There are now prototypes of ships with sails on them. I know it sounds like we're sort of back to the future, but believe it or not, they can deploy. It's not a fabric sail in most cases. It's, it's more of a solid sort of a panel that can be deployed on ships and then moved to catch the wind in, a, in an automated way. That can really make the ship much more efficient. So there's exciting things like that that are, are happening. And on the shore side, you mentioned shore power. In some cases, we may see shore power, and people are probably wondering, what is shore power? Well, when a big ship comes into port, it continues to run its engines to generate power for the ship. It doesn't plug in. It, you know, They don't drop an extension cord overboard and plug it into an outlet, because these are massive ships that require a lot of power. They have been moving in some places, like the L.A. Basin, Los Angeles Basin, to turn those ships off, turn the engines off so they're not emitting any of those sulfurs or any of the particular matter and plug in. Now, it's not an extension cord. These are it's a significant infrastructure you need to be able to connect a ship to a shoreside source of power. So that's something else that, that could be coming in, in some ports, particularly the, the busier ports. And we'll have to see whether that's something we want to do here in Cleveland. Replacing older equipment on the port itself, cranes, what we call tow motors, the big lift trucks that can move around very heavy loads, and railroad locomotives, greening those engines and tugboats, that's all coming too. We're seeing here in Cleveland, our local tug company is replacing older, less efficient, higher emission engines with lower emission engines. We've replaced several cranes with low emission cranes, so we're doing a lot to address air quality. We've talked a lot about water quality, but to address air quality as well associated with ports. Will, thanks a lot for coming again for another episode of CEO Corner. Look forward to having you back here. And that will wrap up for the second episode of Great Lakes Forward. Jay Davis on behalf of Great Lakes Forward and the Port of Cleveland signing off. The Great Lakes. In the center of North America are the Great Lakes. The Port of Cleveland is one of the largest ports on the Great Lakes. Over 20,000 jobs and $3.5 billion in annual economic activity are tied to roughly 13 million tons of cargo that move through Cleveland Harbor each year. The Port of Cleveland is the only local government agency whose sole mission is to spur job creation and economic vitality in Cuyahoga County and Northeast Ohio. Port is the economic engine for the community, a key to Northeast Ohio's global competitiveness, and a crucial partner in building Cuyahoga County's future. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at, at Porter Cleveland. And on LinkedIn, you can find us at our official name, which is the Cleveland Cuyahoga County Port Authority. Follow us there and also subscribe to this podcast. Technical support and audio production provided by Shark and Minnow. Great Lakes Forward is sponsored by Logistech, the terminal operator of the Port of Cleveland. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you again for listening to that very informative podcast and our guest, Tina Kimball at Tata Steel. Let's definitely digest some of the different angles and perspectives that 
that she was able to give today from one of the Great Lakes' largest international customers throughout the Great Lakes. And so we really appreciate that. And again, if you have any questions or you have anything you want us to bring up on future episodes, make sure you follow us again and follow our podcast, Great Lakes Forward. Visit us at greatlakesforward.com. Thanks a lot and have a great one.